Howdy, and welcome to Your Dog's Best Life. This is Leanne, and today my special guest is Nita Gandera, and we are going to talk about puppies. But first, we need to just do a little bit um, kind of catching up with Nita and find out what she's up to. So my understanding is Australian Shepherd Nationals is happening in October, end of October. I know that because somebody else was telling me they can't do something because they're there. Like, like that's important. Uh, so, so usually you go and kind of crush it. So who are you taking and, and what are you competing in? Okay. My two competitors this year are Ayla and Rye. Ayla is doing tracking, obedience, rally, herding. And then uh, she's competing in MVA for, with all of that. Then Rye is also competing in MVA, but he's only doing herding, obedience, and rally. Okay, so what is MVA? Most versatile Aussie. So you earn points for each competition that you qualify in, and they modify points based on the level you're in. So like in stock, advanced stock runs earn a lot more points than started stock runs. Okay, that seems reasonable. That seems yeah. like a cool thing. Yeah. yeah. And so you're you're earning points for all of these things. And number one, it's an honor just to qualify for MVA because you have to qualify on stock. You have to qualify in a performance event and you have to have a confirmation score given. So just to qualify is good, but the the true test is trying to make the top 10. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, that'd be, a, that'd be kind of probably hard. So, so you have to, did you, does that mean you, you showed in confirmation at some point during the year? No. So for, for NVA, the judge is judging just your dog according to the breed standard and you're not competing against other dogs in the ring. So they give you it. So they say like, oh, her muzzle and blah, blah, blah is worth 10 points. Her, <laughs> her, her front end, her, her shoulder layback is not very good. So we're only going to give that three points. She's a little bit cowhawk. So we'll give her one point. So you end up with a confirmation score for NVA. That's actually really kind of cool. I have to tell you. <laughs> It's kind of, I'm like, so, I don't care about that part of it. So it's okay. So I have to tell you, I've been invited to judge at a Border Collie specialty. And it was one of those things where I kind of said yes before I realized what I was saying yes to. I'm really bad about that. And a friend of mine, a person I know that I've gone to stock dog trials and I've met at stock dog trials who has a really nice little Border Collie, uh, she she messages me and she says, Hey, do you want to do this little fun class at the border collie specialty in Arizona in March? And I'm like, dude, um, I'm so not qualified. What the fuck? But sure. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> Why not? The hell? So then she sends me the parameters of what this class is. And it was for only for dogs who have titles in stock. So I'm thinking it's some, because I'm like, they don't do stock at these trials. I mean, they don't have stock at the specialty for Border Collies. It's all confirmation, I thought. But I'm like, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they'll have some cool shit and I can have them do all sorts of fun stuff with a, with a fucking flock of sheep. No, no, it's confirmation. And it's confirmation designed, it's, it's confirmation against the standard of Yes, the Border Collie standard is as described by the AKC, but also the standard of stock dog work. Oh. So how would this dog 
stand up confirmationally to a life of true stock dog work. So I have a good eye for confirmation in horses. I have a pretty decent eye for confirmation in dogs. But, you know, a lot of these border collies are really fluffy. Yes, they are. (laughs) I have all these naked dogs and I've been studying the shit out of confirmation. (laughs) I tried to stack tag. So, and it has... (laughs) Oh, Jesus. So not only do I not know how to stack a dog, right? So I've been I've been studying, I've been studying, I've been studying. I'm like, okay, well, I need her feet here and I need her feet here. And she thinks I'm trying to saw them off. And so she's she looks like she's been beaten. You know, I put her foot here and she's like all droopy and sad. I'm like, just fucking hold still for one second, cupcake. You're fine. Her ass, Nita, stands about two inches higher than her shoulder. No matter yeah. what yeah. I stack this dog, I'm like, oh, and her rear feet are very indecisive. Her right one feels that she should be going right. And her oh, no. left one <laughs> feels that she should be going left. And and being a little easty westy is okay. It's considered okay in, in stock dogs because if they're kind of like um, stock horses, that's kind of considered to be a... Not a big fault because right. the the thinking is that it makes them easier to get down into their hawks and change directions quickly. Because I'm like, well, this because their feet are indecisive. But oh my, oh my god! And then I stacked Briscoe, where <laughs> he is currently in a hideous growth stage, where he's about. <laughs> He looks like a dachshund. He's about 10 feet longer than he needs Jeez. to be. I'm like, what is going on? And his hip is four inches above his shoulder. He looks like he's walking downhill. And every time I lift a leg, the whole dog like liquefies. He's like, you took my leg. I cannot yeah. stand. I will perish. And so, so, yeah. So I have some really awesome confirmation dogs. So anyway, that's what I've been doing. Well, my time I mean, is studying Bris- Briscoe is at that age where you just yes. put a paper bag on your head and don't look at him. Because <laughs> you just cry. Yes. So that does bring us to puppies because Briscoe is, what, seven months old right now? Yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah. I've um, lost track. Yeah, it changes every month. <laughs> Darn. Every time I figure out his age, it changes again. And you have Nessie. His sis- Nessie, his sister. So... So tell us a little bit, because I think it's interesting to talk about how we raise puppies. Everybody's different and everybody comes at puppy raising a little differently. And I think what's important for people to take away from this conversation that we're going to have is that we both know what we're doing and we're both coming at this from, we just do things differently and that it's okay. It is very okay. If your genetics are okay and you do most of the things right during the critical socialization period. And the dog has a good start with puppy culture or something similar. You're probably fine going in 50 different directions. And so (laughs) I'd like to, because, because there's you and I, because we have a private Facebook group and it's hilarious because you're posting like today, Nessie got up and got the mail and then cooked me some eggs. (laughs) Oh, I wish she would. I'm, I'm posting today. Briscoe rolled in horse shit. You know, <laughs> that's his high water mark for the day. Okay, so 
We won't talk about how much duck and goose poop Nessie eats in a day. So. Oh, yuck. Oh, and cat poop. Cat poop, too. Yum. Oh, thank God I don't have cats. <laughs> yeah, we have three outdoor cats, so she knows where to find it all. Yay. Yeah, that's fantastic. So let's start off with with the breeding. Let's start. We So the bre- I can't speak to the breeding. I'll have you do that, even though I own this dog, which is just fucking embarrassing, but whatever. Uh <laughs> But I will, I can speak, you know, we can both speak to puppy, they were both raised, the, the whole litter was raised using puppy culture. Yes. And and like I said, I'm not doing a plug for puppy culture because I there are plenty of other options out there that are similar and they run along the same lines. There's no evidence to my knowledge behind puppy culture, but the evidence is kind of in the picture that if you want a well-started dog, you've got to have the genetics and then you've got to have a decent start to 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 optimize what you end up with. And, and by that I mean, you know, if you have a golden retriever, you can raise them in a barn. They'll be fine. <laughs> These well, aren't golden retrievers. These are Australian no, shepherds. And Australian exactly. shepherds and we be, know that the breed can have temperament issues. Yeah, they can be neurotic and they can be a little sharpish. So first, why did you choose to get a puppy from this leather other than possibly peer pressure from Emily? Actually, there was no peer pressure on this one. So first of all, the sire drew me heavily. His name is Nato. He has been an ASCA stock finalist every year for many years and places very high at finals. He's an amazing stock dog. I've seen him work. I have met him in person. And that's what I'm looking for right now is somebody to bring me up in my stock game. So that was the first thing. But then the dam, the dam is a little softer than I like, but her sire is one of my favorite Aussies of all time, Finn. So bringing in the Finn with the NATO meant, hmm, this is, this could be some lines I like and want to propagate. Okay. Okay. So Finn, so Finn is a stock dog too? Yes. Uh, Finn has stock titles. He never got his witch. He was one, I think his advanced cattle title short of his witch. Okay. And explain what a witch is. The working trial champion, which is the cha- uh, stock dog champion title in uh, Australian Shepherd Club of America. And they had to be on all three types of stock. They need to be on cattle, sheep goats, and ducks, geese. So yes. all three, because I can never get the equivalent of a, of a witch on any of my dogs because none of my dogs work cattle. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yep. We don't have safe cows in Southern Arizona. They're all savages. Uh, there, there's a reason I drive far to work the cattle I work. Yeah. You need safe cows because yes. it, it just takes one kick and you're out a dog. And that's why I cows do frighten me. So yeah. Um, okay, so we know the breeding. Now, what part of, was there any part, whenever we have a, a breeding mix, no matter how well you research it, there's always going to be something in the mix that makes you kind of go, hmm, that makes you maybe make changes in, in your socialization of your puppy, or that you're just kind of a little more watchful for maybe than than you would be with just an unknown. So was there anything in this particular breeding that made you hyper aware of certain aspects of of your puppy in the first few months of life? Well, like I said, the dam, the the mother of the litter is a little softer than I like. 
she can be very clingy. She can be just, you know, appeasing type behaviors. So I knew that in those early months, I wanted to do a lot to build my dog's confidence and her power and her willingness to keep going. So that was my whole goal from the beginning. Okay. And then we know that Aussies can be a little, they can, they can tend towards reactive. And by reactive, I mean, if you see an Australian shepherd, walking down the street, it is it is probably a better than 50-50 chance that that dog, if you have a dog, may pop off at your dog, bark and act like an asshat. So the critical socialization period, as far as I understand, as far as the science goes, is that first four-month window when the dog's brain is extremely plastic and extremely open to new experiences and they're pretty, they're, they have, they've had a fear period, usually it comes around eight weeks, but then they come out of it and they're usually just open for new experiences. After four months, the brain is still plastic. It's plastic through our whole lives. But that critical socialization window kind of starts to close. I don't think it slams shut. I don't know what the science really says on this, but my feeling is that Experiences that occur after four months, it's not like they're, they have no value. But the first four months are super, super, super valuable. That, that, that first four months is where the dog learns what is normal in their realm of life. So the stock dog is going to learn, have a different socialization experience than the dog living in an apartment in a city. And if they switch places... They will not have learned what's normal in this new life. And it will take them a little longer to integrate into the new normal. So it's just teaching them what's normal in their war, their world. So when we talk about socialization, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and confusion in the world. And so <laughs> I would like to, t I would like to hear what you've done what you either, you know, because again, four months means that you've already lost two months. So you only really, you, you, once you pick up your puppy, you've really got just two months in that, in that window. Now we know the first two months were spent in puppy culture, which is pretty, a, a pretty good start. What did you do? What is your socialization protocol or plan look like for your puppy? Okay. So because my dogs do end up traveling with me and getting exposed to a lot of places, a lot of people, a lot of new sites. I try to take my puppies with me as much as possible when I'm traveling. I want them to go into the hotels. I want them to ride the elevators. But along the way, I'm teaching them how I want them to react to the world. So I use a lot of uh, bat behavioral adjustment training and a lot of control unleashed by uh, Leslie McDevitt work, such as her look at that game, teaching them that just because there's a dog over there, we don't have to run over and see it. Ignore the dog. It's not part of your, what you need to be doing right now. Instead, we can look at the dog, then look back at me and let's have a discussion about what we're doing about it. So it, it's about teaching them to be neutral in the world versus everybody's my best friend and all the dogs want to see me and oh you just bit me I'm sorry you know I don't want that part in her life I just want her to be a very neutral part of the world okay so I have very strict rules about dog dog interaction dog human interaction and those rules are even more strict when I've got a puppy and so when when I got Briscoe I kind of do the same thing I don't have elevators 
I don't have that kind of technology. We don't have that in Arizona. <laughs> yes, that's complicated things. <laughs> but uh, so he went in cars all immediately from the minute he arrived. You know, I go into town. He goes to my workplace. So he's in the car, in the car, in the car. He's also, because when I first get him, he's not fully vaccinated. I'm aware of parvovirus and I'm cautious. So in the city, because he's not going to be a city dog, you know, I don't live in New York. I live in the middle of nowhere in, in, in Arizona. So I don't let a puppy his age touch the ground, but he's, he's with, he's just carried from, you know, the car to indoors. He's right, carried right. from place to place. But in the desert, I completely let him be a puppy. So when, let's say we were going into town and maybe he had to go pee because he came to me with a bladder the size of a blueberry, I'd stop. <laughs> if we were in the desert, I'd just let him loose and he could piddle 55 times and get back in the crate and then need to go again. In the city, it was you are either on blacktop or you're in the building. And it's not, I don't let them on gravel. I certainly don't let them on grass. I'm just hyper vigilant about that. But but he has to, in that period of time, he has to meet a bunch of dogs and people. And when I say meet, I think this is where there's a lot of fuzziness. And I'd like to hear how you do it too. When I say meet, Briscoe has never met a dog on leash that he doesn't know. Not one right. time. Right. Has he had nose to nose contact with a strange dog, nor has he met a human being on leash that approached him and walked up to him. Now we've stood next to other human beings, but they didn't walk up to him. They were talking to me and they didn't reach down to pet him. He's net to my knowledge. I don't believe he's ever been petted by a strange person on leash. Now off leash, he's had plenty of interactions. You know, I have right. puppies coming in for, for training. He gets to play and rampage with them. He has, of course, my own dogs. He has the neighbor girl, little kid he's met. He's, he's met multiple people off leash, but I never, ever, ever, I cannot stress this enough, especially with this breed, because again, this is the first Aussie I've raised from puppyhood. I've owned, this is my third Aussie, but the first one I've raised since puppyhood, but I raised border collies and they're very similar in that they can become reactive as they grow up. And they, especially the reactivity tends to really they just don't like people in their personal space. Right. And so I, I want to teach them from the very beginning, no one is ever, ever going to invade your personal space. You may approach a person. You're welcome to do that. And he's very friendly and very forthright, but it's very much on his own terms. And I think that's the piece that I think people really misunderstand is that they should be meeting, quote unquote, all of these people and all these dogs. And by meeting, the answer to me must always be the dog elicits the attention, the dog mm-hmm. controls the interaction, and there are no leashes to to clutter up the picture for yes. him. See, that is such an ideal picture. I don't have that opportunity as much. She has gotten to meet some dogs off leash, but we don't have the dogs coming in and out like you do. So it's been harder to get that part of it. That's why for her, it's been more about ignoring the other dogs. And absolutely. On leash, another dog is none of his business. Exactly. And he, he comes right out. And and honestly, if he never had those play-play opportunities with other dogs, I don't. that wouldn't affect me or him long-term. It's just easy. And clients love it because I send their puppies home tired. <laughs> <laughs> Such a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, because you know when you have an hour session with a puppy, you know you're spending five minutes of that training the puppy, 25 of that training the owner, and then if we let the last 15 minutes just let me, I call it puppy rampage time, then I can send home a tired puppy and I look like a brilliant trainer. Oh, he's so tired. <laughs> so, and it gives, it takes a little bit of an edge off Briscoe and it teaches him to be appropriate around puppies. He's a little bit of a bulldozer. So. Oh, really? Yeah. I would have never guessed that from the videos I've seen. Of him. I know. He seems so subtle and soft. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> not. It's, it's a facade. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk. Let's talk early training. Because again, that's another place where people kind of get all kerfuffled up about am I going to ruin the dog? May I put too much in, in herding? There's this idea that we can train too much, yes. that we can get the dog overly focused on the human being. And, and I've seen it and I can't, the problem is, is it's one of those things that people will come out to my place, will try to put their dog on stock and the dog won't leave the owner. The dog can't function with another handler and the dog is so handler oriented that it can't leave the handler. Now I'm only seeing that at the end, right? I'm not, I'm not right. hearing that this dog has 30 generations of stock dog. You know, I don't know. These could be dogs that would never turn on to stock. And so so my, my instinct is to not get carried away with a lot of me orientation outside. I'm trying to think of how I'm going to say this because I do. Start you don't want the handler focus. I want, I want a little bit of handler focus, but it's going to be very contextual. Yes. So if, if we're in my building and, and I have a treat pouch on, I am the center of your universe. If we're out here on the property, I need to be, remain relevant, but you're welcome to, to dog all you want. Go chase right. bunnies, chase lizards, enjoy, do dog things. I, I need to be seeing the picture. You can't blow me off, but I'm, I'm trying to really, I'm doing a little differently with tag. I was very hands-off. We didn't start any heel training until she was introduced to stock. Okay. And that was, I want to say like seven or eight months. And then I was, even then I was super, casual, not casual. I was super um, conservative with it. We were doing touch bucket pivot work, which she was breathtakingly inept at. And <laughs> I still didn't want to really focus on heel work because even though I'd introduced her to stock, we weren't working stock. And with her, I had to keep putting her away 12 months, 13 months, 14 months, 15 months, 16 months, because she was such a freaking shark on the stock. And oh. so we didn't really get to start, start her on stock until 16 months. And that's when I'm like, oh, I should probably get starting with heel work because I, I really kind of believed I just didn't want to overfocus. Now with Briscoe, I am starting heel work with him. Uh, we are mm -hmm. already starting. He's really good at side passing. <laughs> Yay. He is the big he is the most crooked puppy I've ever trained in my whole life. Oh. I think his ass is exactly even with his head what he's healing. Jeez. Um, <laughs> oh, he's I, you heal against the wall and it's almost like he doesn't know how to do it. So anyway, so I'm doing a little more training with him than I have I did with Tag, but I, I do not still Part of it is I don't put a lot of training in any of my dog. You know, I, I put the training in that I need and that's kind of it. But your dog is doing your taxes. So let's hear a little <laughs> bit about how, where you're started, what your dog has done, and, and we'll kind of go from there. Okay. So first of all, I will say we have different goals, long-term goals for our dogs. 
For me, obedience is my first love. I love to compete in obedience. So I am going to put a bunch of behaviors on my puppies to prepare them for a life of doing obedience competitions. That's my primary focus with stock being a very strong secondary focus. And I'm always, so I will say when Ayla first started working stock, and of course I'd put a lot of obedience on her, my stock instructor was like, oh my God, we're going to have no problem with this dog. She listens to you. You tell her down, she lies down. I mean, I wish all my dogs came in like this. Yes. (laughs) It does help. Yeah. Obedience to some level helps. Yes. So, but for me, I'm coming at it from number one, I want my dog to do obedience. Number two, I want them to work stock. Number three, just in case something ever happens to me, I want them to be able to step in as a service dog for me if something happened to me that I would need one. So I want them to have all sorts of weird little skills to aid in those goals. Okay. So based on that, yes, she has done a lot of training already. So yeah, she is doing all of her heel work, um, pivots, healing. Uh, We're starting to increase some distances, lots of focus. Um, because of course, healing is the hardest, longest thing to teach in obedience. Oh, she yeah. does. Years. Uh, yeah. It, it takes a long time to get a good healing dog, which is why novice obedience is so wrong because you have two healing patterns in it. It makes no sense. <laughs> so because, obedience, of course, she's doing her retrieves. She can retrieve dumbbells. She can retrieve any. So yesterday I had her retrieving an aluminum can that my husband had emptied out. So I'm like, Go get it and bring it to me. And it took a couple of tries for her to figure out how to pick up an aluminum can, but she did it. Oh, you should you should do what I do and just give them to them as toys. Frisco, <laughs> Frisco's already poked holes in aluminum cans and chased them all over the house. That's my concern is the, the poking holes <laughs> and destroying teeth and gums. Oh, I've never had that happen. <laughs> cans don't fare well, but yeah. Yeah. She does set articles for utility and we're doing, so she used to, we were just doing them in the living room. And I found when I take them out in public, she's not as confident on them. So now we're starting to take them to lots of different places. Yesterday we went out to, I have a, a big piece of property. So I have lots of places I can go just on my own property. And I put some on a bench and some in the leaves at the ground by the bench And because all the leaves are falling here, she had to go figure out where her sin articles were buried in leaves. And again, it's just encouraging her to use her nose, get to work, keep going. She, what else do you do? And scent articles are for, these are, these are for scent work, nose work, like clove and nose? No. Or or these are obedience, they have your hand scent on them. Yes, these are the obedience ones with my hand scent. She is doing okay. scent work with Birch, Anise, and Clove also. Um, okay. This morning, she got introduced to hides and water, which did not go real well. She's like, you want me to drink it? I don't know. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, we need to figure out how to intro you to buried hides because you're not automatically getting it. But she does, we go out anywhere and she'll do her hides. She's doing tracking. She went tracking two mornings this week, had some tracks across concrete and asphalt as well as grass. And I mean, and just 
stupid oh she's doing like little baby directed jumping and directed retrieve she's picking up her gloves and bringing them to me she's learning to mark by going out to a lid with the with a cookie on it and i mean just i i can't even think of everything she's been learning oh so the the thing she's been working on the past two weeks the ring toss game picking up the ring and putting it on a, a cone oh yeah 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 okay she's got that one and then learning Two other things she's learning that she's still struggling with. Rolling herself in a blanket because she's like, I can lay down, I can pick up the blanket, and I can roll, but I can't do all three at the same time. <laughs> That's a lot of thinking for a little puppy brain. It is a lot of thinking. That's why we're just being very patient with it. And she has recently learned to to sit pretty. So now it and and she already knows how to sit and wrap her leg around something like a hug so now it's putting together the picking up the object sitting pretty and wrapping oh. her legs around it in a hug yes. and it, oh, again yeah. it's just a lot of little pieces that she's having to figure out how to put together because she can do two of them but not three at the same time because it all falls apart that makes sense yeah yeah it's it's hard work, and it's and this kind of hard stuff. It's very mental. I can work on it for a few days, and then I've got to leave it for a few days and let her just think it through, and then come back and work it for a few days, then leave it for a few days. It's not a we're going to drill this, drill, drill, drill until you get it. It's like no, we'll just we'll we'll keep circling back to it, easing our way into it until it all comes together one day. Okay. That makes sense. So Briscoe has sitting down and his name. You know what? That's awesome. <laughs> that is more than a lot of dogs know. So good for you. Yeah. He is sitting down. Oh, and we're doing, we're having so much fun. So I suck. Uni- I am uniquely badly skilled <laughs> at teaching a stand. I, every ah. one of my dogs stand is a complete piece of shit. And I asked her, I have to lure it. I just, and I trying all the different, so now we're trying the pop stand where the yep. dog like pops up in the air. And then I've never yeah. had luck with that one. Well, I'm trying it. Cause at least, you know what? The dogs love it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're trying that with Briscoe and he thinks it's the coolest thing in the world. Uh, sometimes it turns into a pop sit, which is not quite what I had. Well, that's, that's what I get is the pop sit. So, yeah. So we we're we're trying that with him, but so let's, but what I I was listening to, and there were a couple things that came up. So the first is I do want to talk a little bit about, there's a lot of controversy about allowing a puppy to do sit pretty. Yes, there is. There's so, a lot of controversy about allowing everything. any dog to do no. sit pretty. Oh yeah, you're right. Oh my God. It's yeah, not just puppies. Worse. It's all yeah. of them. So, so what's your take? I mean, obviously you think it's okay. And, and I'm a vet tech and I'll tell you, I've never seen any dog come in for a sit pretty injury. So, yeah. so I'm kind of. <laughs> my, my take on it but, is there are a lot of dogs out there that do it naturally they just yes. do it automatically. Yes. And if my dog tells me they can't do it right now, it's not a big deal. That's okay. Right. We'll just try again in six months. Mm-hmm. Um, but she tends to like to be up on her back feet anyway. So I'm mm-hmm. like, why not? Let's right. go for it. No. I'm not, like I said, it's not, it's, 
a lot of times these rules strike me as madness and then they just get passed on and yes. they make no sense. I'm like a little, if we have 12 year old girls going to Olympics and gymnastics, I think it's probably okay <laughs> yeah. if your puppy does sit pretty, but I do want to talk about exercise because people get really kind of a little headed up about exercising puppies. So there's there's a meme that goes around every so often on Facebook. Oh yeah. There are two memes that go around Facebook, both of which make me angry and both of which make me usually jump in and make corrections and then we get into great fights on the internet. Uh, so <laughs> the first is of course the picture of the four-week-old puppy that is usually claimed to be an eight-week-old puppy. Yeah. Stating that the bones aren't attached, which of course Here's the science, folks. They are attached. Your dog is not born with bones two inches <laughs> apart from one another. They are attached with cartilage. Cartilage is an extraordinarily strong substance. Yes. And it will ossify into bone with calcium being absorbed into the bone. But they're not free-floating. That picture is A, not eight weeks old. B, it is a four-week-old puppy. And C, they're not just floating freely in the skeleton. That is a... Uh, I always have issues. If you have to lie to get your point across, I'm going to really find your point dubious. Yes. Then the argument is that your dog shouldn't do anything until everything has, has calcified, has all the bones, all the long bones have stopped growing, which for an Aussie is probably closing in on easily two years. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so just leave your puppy tied up or any crate until they're two years old. And never let them experience anything and learn their bodies. Right. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a little science in here. So so I'm a horse person. And I I worked at Churchill Downs and I saw young horses running and it really bothered me. Uh, I came from the dressage world where we don't start colts until they're three. Um, we go super slow. You know, they're not doing anything until they're seven. Right. At least that's the idealized version. I can't speak to what happens in real life. And here are these two-year-old colts and they're out there racing. And then you see these catastrophic failures. We call them, you know, that's what we call them at the track. It's, you know, catastrophic failure. What it really is, is the dog, the horse snaps a leg and is either euthanized or the career yeah. ends. And, and a lot of noise is said about starting Colts young. And, I, and I'm very, I have very strong um, emotional feelings and opinions about this. But here's what the science has found. They did an amazing study in Australia on young racehorses. And what they found is that young racehorses that are galloped, starting at a very young age, put on more bone because we all know that concussive activity builds bone. Mm -hmm. They put on more bone and they have fewer catastrophic failures. It seems counterintuitive. And, and my brain really struggled with this because I had created this ingrained thou shalt not start a <laughs> yes. cult emotional thing that I thought was scientifically backed. But when the science is in your face and it's telling you something different, you kind of need to change directions. And and I still struggle with the idea of backing a two-year-old colt. I mean, I still think that most of that running should not be necessarily on a track. But the science isn't made up. And so when I get a puppy, I, those puppies are doing things. So yes. Briscoe was all over this property. It is a vertical property. We went on hikes. We went <laughs> We went on ATV rides. Not very far. We might go, I would take him like a quarter mile, turn around, or not even a quarter. I'd go like 200 yards, turn around, come home. So it'd be a 
a total of quarter mile, put right. him away and then take the real dogs out. But just so he could understand that this is how we do things. We'd walk down to the sheep, we'd walk down, you know, he, he ran all over the property. We'd take him, I took him to a couple of, of herding trials and then he'd come camping with me and rampage in the, in the desert and the woods. We went camping and he got to keep up with the big dogs. And I do not cap even remotely the activity and the stressors placed on a young dog's bones. He does, he got his novice do more with your dog trick title me, only because I was competing with Nita. <laughs> just so you guys know, not only was my competition a month late, but my tricks were lame. Hers were actually trained things. Mine were like, look, he can go over things. He can go under things. He can go into things. They were all about three-dimensionality and essentially parkour, which is what I feel super, super important for my puppy. So he's been over the A-frame. He's been over jumps. He's been through tunnels. He's climbed mountains. He's problem-solved downed logs when he was a little so, bitty puppy. So what we're talking about is proprioception. Yes, absolutely. Teaching his body where it lays in in the environment and teaching his brain to problem solve in a three-dimensional world. That is the most important thing we can do for our puppies. So like you, I live on hills. We have three very steep hills on the property. We have woods and I have a walking trail through the woods that includes logs that go across the path. You know, a tree falls down, we don't remove it. It stays there on the path. Some of them are have like a six inch gap under them and it's a little high to go over so they learn to crawl under it or they learn to jump she's out there several times a week on that path and i mean she started as an eight week old baby learning how to negotiate through that trail and climb those hills and fall down those hills yeah <laughs> and i think there's nothing more valuable than that because i think for one thing so i want my puppy i want my dog to problem solve yes i'm hurting I feel much more than obedience requires the dog to be able to solve problems in the moment on its own. They're seeing things that I'm not seeing or they're reacting to things that I am seeing, but I can't get there or do anything. I can't cue them that right. quickly. I need them to balance those sheep, which means they need to pay attention to that ear flick, the head turn. That's mm -hmm. their job. And that's all problem solving. And they need to know how to problem solve in a calm manner. And the first time you're faced with a puzzle you can't solve, it's frightening. And I remember we took I took Briscoe out. I think I just had him like maybe a couple of weeks. So he might have been 12, 13 weeks old. And I'm, I was at a herding trial up north in Arizona and I was camping in the woods and we took the dogs on a little hike and I, and I challenged him with a downed log, just like you were talking about. Yes. The downed log was too big. He couldn't get over it Aww. and it was smushed into the ground and he couldn't get under it, which meant that he had to figure out how to go around. Cause the other dogs went over it cause they're right. just jerks. They're like, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, he's stuck. We're That's free now. Bad. Don't That's jump. Too bad. <laughs> We'll miss you. Bye. <laughs> so I called him and, and he kind of, he kind of looked at the log a little bit and he tried to go up one side. He tried to go up the hill at it, but it was long. And then that was the root, you know, the big root ball. Cause it had toppled over. Right. And then he went down the log and figured it out. And you could kind of see, he got a little worried. He's a puppy. Right. And, yeah. and he's like, Oh my God, I'm being left behind. I'm, I'm going to perish. Right. I mean, it is a little bit of fear of death. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, 
you know, but I was standing right there. I didn't like <laughs> abandon him. <laughs> but, you know, there is that fear that, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm being left. And then you could almost see the big grin break out on his face when he recognized that he'd gone around this log and he was safe and sound and, and my other dogs hadn't abandoned him in spite of all their their desire to do so. <laughs> and we just went on another camping trip and there were all these downed t- timber. I don't know what, I don't, it looked like they were cutting maybe like, like maybe cutting fire breaks or something. Mm-hmm. So there's yes. this, but it was just a hodgepodge of pixie stick pieces of wood. Oh, and yeah. I would let the dogs run out in front and then I'd call them back to me. So they would have to navigate this in a three-dimensional space at different speeds. When they were going out, they were sniffing and noodling around and, and in no right. great hurry. They were following their noses. There were there were um, four dogs. They were all making these choices because I had Shade. I had his sister. And then when I called them, it was a more direct route. And, of course, the bigger, faster dogs came faster. And that left the puppies to negotiate it. And I took video because... What I loved and what I found fascinating is some the puppies did have to take slightly different lines because they're they were a little smaller right. and certainly not as powerful as the bigger dogs the older dogs. And they both sussed out, you know, like she preferred to duck under, he preferred to go over. But it's all this beautiful in the moment problem solving in the in in the work of doing something for me which is what hurting is. Yes. I'm in the picture, I'm directing it, but you have to problem solve the way to get to the end picture, which is what I absolutely love about kind of proprioceptive puzzles, whether they be something I create in my building or I think is even more powerful is just going out into the wilderness where there are yeah. boulders and there's you know, and there's trees and it's just so much more powerful for these, for these dogs yes. to learn. How many rocks have our puppies climbed on top of? Yeah. Oh, they love to perch. Yeah. And, and I have, my property is on a massive slope on top of this mountain. And so we have layers of, of flat brickwork. And then in between, we have these rows of, of retaining wall that the dogs use like like habit trails, like the hamster. <laughs> yes. You know, they go from <laughs> one awesome. rocking rock to the next thing. And that's fantastic. Cause again, a puppy, uh, as I was talking about with the heel work, Briscoe really has no clue where his rear end is. It's, it's an independent contractor, <laughs> but when you're walking on a wall, you kind of need to line those bits up or they're going to oh, fall yeah. off. Oh and yeah. And if you turn on it, that takes a lot of mental and physical problem solving, which I, which I really love to see. We're building pathways in the brain that the dog can pull on in later life because they have built the pathways. If we never had them out, they would not know how to negotiate and how to move their bodies and to think about going over or under or around. Or it, Both of us are coming at this, although we take different approaches, but some very similar things, but it's all about building pathways to make our dogs more successful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I start, I like free shaping. So I start with free shaping right away yep. so that we're problem solving on that on, in the context again of working with me. One thing I don't do a lot of is I, I don't, obviously I don't do puppy free for alls. I don't go to dog parks ever, no. ever, ever. No. I've never taken any dog to a dog park in my entire life. And I also don't do puzzle toys. I, I'm not a puzzle toy fan. I don't, I don't do those. Yeah. I don't do many of them with some of my dogs. I've done a few, 
but mm-hmm. it's not something that is part of our everyday life. And if I'm using them, it's probably in a hotel room where yeah. I need to get them to burn some energy since right. we can't Problem go out and run. And get away from me. <laughs> go get away. <laughs> get away. Well, because I think, you know, because I think we, no matter what our goals are, you know, yours are much more obedience focused. Mine are much more, you know, my, my goals are reversed. Mine is hurting first, obedience right. second. Right. And, but we both, we both want a dog who's connected to us. Yes. And my, my issue with puzzle toys, I, there are a couple issues I have with puzzle toys. The first is if you have a dog who would have a brain, you've just spent 20 bucks on something that lasts 10 seconds because most dogs <laughs> can solve them pretty quickly. The yeah. second is they did do research and this was pretty fascinating. And I re- I don't remember how, when I read this research, I think it's rather old. I want to say it's almost 20 years old. It's old research that showed that the more training a dog has, the the more they look to the human to solve their problems for them. Ah. Now, there, there were some questions, you know, as I've, like I said, I read this study a very, very long time ago. I don't even think I was a dog trainer at the time. I think I was a vet tech at the time. I did find it fascinating enough to read the study a couple of times, but coming back at it now from more dog trainer mentality, I believe the dogs they were talking about were working dogs, like true working dogs. I think they mm-hmm. were police type dogs or something along those okay. lines. So part of me asks, what was the training modality? Because a lot that, of those That dogs... was my first question because I'm like, was this learned helplessness? If I yes. don't do anything, I will not get punished. Yes. And... So the exactly. So my first question, of course, is the training modality because if you're using a great deal of punishment in your training, it's not so much the dog can't problem solve is the dog becomes terrified of problem solving because if their answer is not clear, they're not going to take a chance of making a wrong choice, right. which is again, why I introduced free shaping right at the beginning with any dog is, is I want them to understand they can, there's no such thing as a wrong choice. Just keep making choices. <laughs> but, but one of the things I do find fascinating about that is, so I did get a puzzle toy. Somebody gave one to me to review for when I used to write for a magazine and <laughs> it was this, it's this plastic round thing and there's this top thing on it. And the way it turned, these little flip up things had to be flipped with the nose. So I put it down in front of each of my dogs at the time. Yeah. And it was just fascinating to watch because Cody, my border collie, who has a long learning history with me, uh, fucked with it with her feet. Like she stomped it a couple times because there's food in it and Cody <laughs> will eat ground glass to get to food. And then she just looked at me like... I, you're going to have to help me. You have the opposable thumbs. Why are you doing this? And she was just like, this is stupid. And then she walked away. <laughs> oh, tag tag was all about the feet. And she just bashed the crap out of it until it, it some of the pockets popped open and food magically happened. And then my livestock guardian <laughs> dog just came and picked it up with her mouth, flipped it upside down and all the food came out. Um, so, okay. <laughs> there you go. Problem, Problem solved. solved. <laughs> um, and one of my, and my very worried border collie dice, who is terrified of making any choice because it's always the wrong one. He's the biggest pessimist I've ever met in my life. Like the <laughs> glass is not just half empty, but what is filled with is toxic. Yes. He, he just looked at it, said, I don't know. And I'm just kind of like fucking walked away. <laughs> but, but what I did wonder is, you know, I had spent so much time with Cody teaching her. I've got your back. I'll take care of this 
that mm -hmm. I, I just kind of wonder if she's like, you know what? It's not that I'm afraid to make a choice. You're the one who knows how to control food. Why, why would I work my ass off when you have opposable thumbs? <laughs> <laughs> That's very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, but anyway, I want my dog problem solving with me in the picture. I, right. you know, I think is what the bottom line is. I, I want, I want to be, I want to be in the picture. The only real things that I, so when I, when I was camping, I had these four dogs camping with four dogs is a joy, just in case you're wondering, <laughs> especially when two are puppies, one's reactive. And, and then I had two good dogs. And so I had a lot of puppy energy to burn. And yes, there did. were places when we were camping that we, they couldn't really be loose because they weren't always making great choices. So <laughs> I put, I tried putting them out on, on cable ties and shade like tangled herself up like an insect in a spider web. That was the end of that. Yeah. And she thought she was being murdered by the line. I'm like, okay, forget it. And so I just scatter fed the shit out of them. Every meal they got was scatter fed. Every single they, I would pour four or five cups into to this pretty deep grass or this chopped up mulch they used near our campsite to get some downed wood taken care of. And I wouldn't hear from them for 30, 40 minutes Perfect. while they all searched. And it was fascinating because, of course, then you know how much food drive they have. You know, my, my <laughs> border collie, Matilda, was in and out. She's like, well, I don't care for food. And then she's like, I'm like, you're not getting fed elsewhere. So it took her about two days to realize that maybe she needed to do this. Shade and Briscoe and Tag, they would search a hundred years for a single kibble. Yes. <laughs> they, were, they were like, yes. So I have to say Briscoe has incredible food drive. His food drive is so amazing. And Shade's is even better. His sister. <laughs> Hers, there was... That she jumped. We have a big truck. We have a GMC. Is that what they call GMC? Yeah. Yes. A super duty, super di I don't know. It's a monster beast of a truck. It's a diesel four wheel drive. So if you can imagine, you know, trucks have gotten ridiculously big. Yes, she they have. jumped into the open tailgate from yes. the ground because I had dropped some kibbles. Wow. Yeah. Now, the bad thing was the second time she tried it, she flopped on her back because I wasn't there to save her ass. I try not to let dogs do that. So then she was reticent for the rest of the time, which was probably a good move because it was yeah, really, it, just, it is really, it, it was not a bad tough. thing. <laughs> yeah. It's not, a, it's not safe, but she made that jump because I think there were like four kibbles right there. That was, she, she was incredibly food driven and I found good play drive on Briscoe. My secondary career for him will hopefully be IGP, which is Shusund, yeah. which is yes. IPO. You know, they keep changing their names. <laughs> and that's a bite sport. And his bite is garbage. So we're going to try to start building that. Because he, when he started playing tug, you tug a little bit and he'd let go. He's like, I'm going to let go. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no, no, that's not the job. The job is to hold it. So now he holds it with like two premolars and an incisor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, speaking of bites, just recently I introduced Nessie to the spring pole to help with bites and holding and gripping and taking things in her mouth and not letting them just pop out. Right. So yeah. I, I totally get that, what, what Briscoe's going through. Yeah, we do have a flirt pole and he will... The problem with flirt poles with herding dogs, and I'm generalizing herding dogs, he has a fair amount of eye mm -hmm. and they tend to eye up 
a little bit on flirt poles. And so I don't want to encourage him eyeing up on toys. I'm really dealing with that with Matilda and the bite work because she'll eye up on the decoy instead of rushing in. She just eyes up. Yeah, she eyes up on him instead of just blowing Ah. in. And so he's got a fair amount of eye. And so, which I love, of course, because my biggest fear when I'm getting this new breed for me for herding is I'm I'm very good at training border collies. Yes. I understand the breed and I understand how they work stock. And I do start, I've started some Aussies, but most of the folks who I start, they just, they taper off, they go away. They just, they just want to see if their dog will work a stock and they don't really yeah. want to commit. So, so you've never taken one all the way through? To never. Both of my Aussies level. washed out. So my first Aussie that I had was named Miss Kitty. And she and I did, we had a very, she, she was found on a railroad track. So she's a really well-bred dog. She was found on the railroad track <laughs> at eight months pregnant. And so we, so the rescue, the friend of mine who rescued her, who worked with uh, Aussie rescue here in Southern Arizona, then I, I took her home. She was beautiful little red Merle, little too much, I guess too much white to be an official, like proper Aussie, but whatever. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful dog. She was like, oh, I know what you do a sheep. You eat them. Oh, yay. And so the amount of pressure that we would have to place on this dog was not amount of pressure that I feel is appropriate for a hobby. Yes. I will yes. not put that kind of pressure on a dog for a hobby. The second Aussie uh, who I own now is Ruby. And Ruby thinks sheep are amazing Pez dispensers. <laughs> yeah. And she will yeah. stroll along behind them getting the freshest bestest, yummiest, sticking her nose right up their, their bums. Yeah. It's really charming. However, it's not really hurting per se. So she also washed out right away. So I've never had, and that was the biggest thing when I was, when, when Emily was calling me, trying to suck me into, into buying Briscoe was I, the biggest thing for me was what are his lines when it comes to stock dogs? Yes. And that's why I was so happy with NATO because I did look, I did look, um, I did look NATO up. You know, I saw him herd at that trial up in in Phoenix, but yes. you know, the whole trial was filled with freaking Aussies. I wasn't paying attention <laughs> to, to which Aussie was doing what. All I know is any Aussie who did well at that trial was a good, any dog who did well at that trial was a good dog because it was actually a real trial yeah, where the was. stock were acting like stock should and they were not trained to walk the course they they were tough refreshing it was so nice to have real stock at a stock dog trial into in arizona where they weren't just so broke to the course that they did it in their sleep so anyway so that was my biggest thing coming in with briscoe was this this desire to ensure that i had a stock dog because i already own two border collies who won't herd and an australian shepherd who won't herd that's a lot of mouths to feed who aren't doing my primary right my primary goal um it is interesting his sister is a huge water fiend. Briscoe is the biggest, daintiest little chicken shit when it comes to water. What? He, he, he will not. He, all the other dogs get hot and they're like, and I have a kiddie pool in the backyard and they jump in it and they lay down and they flop themselves back and forth like a pancake to make sure they're thoroughly wet. Right. And he's like standing back and he'll stick his nose in and take a drink. So I'm like, maybe dock diving's not your future. <laughs> maybe not. Okay, I do have an Aussie that his version of swimming is 
standing in ankle deep water, pawing at it with his front feet. And he's like, look, I'm swimming. I'm like, not quite Zane, but that's okay. So, yeah. Where's Nessie? Nessie's only been around water once. We stayed with a friend. She had a pool. As soon as I opened the gate to the pool, Rye went and jumped in and Nessie followed him in and said, this is the best thing ever. And I'm like, what? You're supposed to wait for me. Yeah. (laughs) Don't you need help? She's like, no, got it. No, I got it. I got it. Yeah. No, we've had a stock pond here and he's chased the ball into the stock pond a couple of times. So, um, so he likes dirty water, you know, know, (laughs) clean, clean water might not, might not be his jam. Okay. Okay. So I've been chatting for about an hour. So let's just kind of wrap it up with, you know, what are your biggest takeaways to people who have, you know, who are they looking for a puppy or they have a puppy or a young dog to ensure that they get the best, the best start? So I think we both agree. The biggest thing is get your dog out and moving and learning about their bodies in the world. So over the stumps, on top of the rocks, go get them out and and move their bodies around through space. That's the most important thing they they can learn. After that, figure out what your goals are. If your goal is to have the best couch potato in the world, teach your dog to be a couch potato. If your goal is to have the top obedience dog in the world, start teaching them the skills to be the top obedience dog in the world. Nobody's here telling you what you have to do with your dog. And it's here that we lost Nita because of technical difficulties. So I will finish up by first saying thank you to Nita. And we wish her all the best at ASCA Nationals, which will probably have already run by the time this goes to print or whatever it goes to. So anyway, we'll be able to report how she did. And like I said, by the time this goes out. So... Uh, the other thing I would like to add is, is the one thing that we didn't touch on, which I think is really important is that most people who have these higher drive breeds understand the amount of sleep they need and that many of them don't by themselves, they cannot self-regulate sleep. And so what Nita and I probably both admitted talking about was that our puppies spend a fair amount of time in crates asleep because they need anywhere from 20 to 18 to 20 hours of sleep when they're a little bitty puppy. And if they become too tired, just like a kid at Disneyland, they can become really cranky and seem really crazy. And that craziness then leads people to play more ball with their dog and do more things with their dog. When in fact, what it really is, is the dog freaking needs a nap. So I'm always really careful to watch how many hours my puppy is out and playing. So while, yes, my puppy is having plenty of adventures, they are in very short little spurts of an hour or two or three, and then it's rest time. And those rest times become shorter and the length of time that the dog can do things become longer. But when they're little bitty puppies, they need a boatload of sleep. And even Matilda at two years of age needs to be crated really to sleep. She's so spun up all the time that if she doesn't do that, she gets overtired and she gets scatterbrained and she's she loses focus and it's very difficult for her. So what I found with these types of dogs is the crate really is your friend if they can't self regulate on their own. Now, a lot of dogs can. I mean, if you own a pit bull, those of those dogs are, are like play, 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 and then they're just conk out. 
but a lot of these herding breeds are kind of always quasi half alert and it's really difficult for them to totally disengage. So for them, I absolutely recommend very structured crate rest, uh, covered in a location in the house where there is no disruptions. So not in the living room where you guys are all watching TV and the, there's another kid and four cats. So anyway, hope you guys got something out of this. We love puppies, and like I said, the great thing is, is I do have a seven-month-old puppy. Neva and I will be coming back. Neva will be coming back probably in a few more podcasts. We'll see, and we're going to talk about the teenage years because puppies are wonderful and great, and they make us feel amazing and happy, and we love our dogs until they hit about a year, and then uh, the wheels kind of come off, and we don't love our dogs as much. So. We want to make sure that anybody who has a puppy they love ends up with a dog they love, and that means they have to survive the teenage times, so or adolescence. So, and Briscoe's coming into that probably in the next few months. So, anyway, if you like our podcast, please like, share, rate, review. Oh my God, I got them all out at the same time. I'm so proud. And join us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, and uh, we're going to try to make it active, but. Join us, please, your dog's best life on Facebook. Thank you so much and happy training.